You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at Acts 2 together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for all the many things that we see you doing in and through and all around us. And we thank you for these things. I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would be our teacher. And that the Holy Spirit that you have promised that is dwelling in us and with us would be the one that comes and illuminates our hearts and our minds, that you would open uh, our minds to understand the truth of your word, that your spirit would move and apply it uh, to our lives, that we would see clearly who you are and what you've done and what it means for us, and that you would change us through that. Uh, we thank you uh, that you've given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know you, that we can grow in that knowledge and understanding together, and we pray that we would do just that this morning. And that you'd be well pleased, that you'd be glorified with everything that's said and done here today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, we're in Acts. We were in this series the last few weeks. And uh, I was thinking about the spread of the church. You know, we've, talk, we've started in Acts and we've talked about how uh, Jesus has come and he's lived and he's died and he's resurrected and the ascension. And right before he goes, right at the beginning of Acts, he says, go and make disciples over the face of the earth. Bear witness. To Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts, we see the spread. And as the gospel goes out and the church expands and people come to faith. And I was thinking about that this week. And I was reading the estimates today of how many Christians, uh, professing Christians, there are in the world. Uh, the, the statistics I were looking at from probably about a year and a half ago, but it gives us at least a nice round figure of about two billion people who claim to know Jesus. Now, we could get into dissecting that and talking about how many people are truly believers and know them in a saving way versus all sorts of things. But the, the, uh, the indisputable fact is that billions of people today in the world count themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing when you think about what we've looked at in Acts, where we started just a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter one, that there's 120 people huddled together in a room. And then we see in Acts chapter two, as, as Luke preached from last week, that number goes from 120 to 3000 overnight. And, and then you go further into Acts and you get to Acts four and it says there were 10,000 men or 5000 men, which means there were at least 10,000 or more. And the gospel just begins to spread exponentially. And that's what we're looking at as we look through Acts. And as we see the spread and as it goes, what we end up seeing is these different summary statements that Luke puts in to this. Uh, if you've been here with us, Luke is the author of Acts. He went and interviewed all these people and he's, he's, he's giving this uh, picture of the church growth from A.D. 30, the time of Jesus' resurrection, and Acts takes us up to about 63 A.D. And so what happens in these 30 or so years? And we see this growth as it goes. And we see uh, Peter preach the first gospel sermon in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and it, it, it uh, begins to work in and through them. God with them, uh, inspiring them, working. And then he stands up and they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter preaches this sermon. And 3,000 come to faith. But the summary statement we're going to look at in verse 42 to 47 today is going to talk more than just what the apostles are doing or just what Peter's doing or just the preaching, but what the church looked like. What the believers that were together, what it looked like. 
And I want us to consider this morning what the church was doing and what it looked like as the Holy Spirit comes in power and it begins to go out. In the image that we get here, I just want us to, to stop and think about that in these few verses this morning. And we're going to look at it this way. Pretty simple. It's a pretty straightforward passage. But we're going to ask this first. What were they doing? And then secondly, how did it change them? And then lastly, what effects did it have on those around? So what were they doing? What change did it have on them? But then the effects that it had on the world around them. And so we're just going to work our way through these few verses in Acts chapter 2. And so let's jump in with what were they doing. And if you would look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 43. And it says, and they, and the they there, uh, Luke read the context. We go back a couple of verses. The they there are those that have just received the word and been baptized. Those that are proclaiming faith in Christ. And so we're talking about the church. You become a believer in Jesus. You're now part of the church. The Holy Spirit now indwells you. Peter says that right before you get the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the they in chapter in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And I want us just to stop there and think about what they're doing. It's pretty straightforward. It's not real hard to understand what was going on here. But the first thing it tells us is they were devoted to the apostles teaching. And if you're with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about who the apostles were, what that means, that that uh, title of apostle. What we see in Acts when we talk about the apostles here is we're talking about those that were eyewitnesses to the historical Jesus. Those that were discipled by Jesus directly. The eyewitnesses to what Jesus had done and said and his death and his resurrection and now his ascension, they had seen all of it. And so when we talk about the apostles here, what we mean is those select group of people that were there with the historical Jesus. Now, today, later on in the New Testament and in Paul's writings, we'll talk about apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers and these different giftings that people have. I think we still have apostles today, but not like this. And so I want to make a distinction. I mentioned this maybe a couple weeks ago, but it's important for us to think about. Apostle today is someone who's good at starting new works, going to new places, planning churches, very entrepreneurial, sees where things are moving and how can we take the gospel and apply it to where our world is going and what it looks like. But they're not eyewitnesses to the historical Jesus. And so the way I like to think of that, sometimes it helps me to remember it's here when we talk about the apostles, the eyewitnesses, kind of big A apostle, capital A apostle. The gift of apostle today is not someone who's an eyewitness, but it's a little A apostle who's gifted in a certain way for the spread of the gospel. Does that make sense? Not the same thing. And so when we talk about Acts and the gifts and the works of the apostles themselves and what they were doing when they died out and that first generation died out, they died out. They were the ones that saw the eyewitness to the historical Jesus. And so we don't have apostles in that sense today. But when we think about devoting themselves to the apostles teaching, remember, this is a very kind of transitory time in the church in Acts. You have the first generation of disciples of Jesus who were eyewitnesses, who saw and walked with him and went with him. And then they begin to teach. And that certainly would have been Jesus's teachings, what we see in the Gospels. 
what these apostles themselves would later write down to become the word that we hold in our hands. But we need to understand right here in 30 A.D. they had not written it down, not what we have in the New Testament. And so they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles as they spoke what Jesus had taught them. Now, to our modern minds, that raises all sorts of questions. Well, wait a second. How can we trust what we have written down today after the fact when they were just speaking it at the time in a very oral culture? And and what happens is we bring our bias today to come to bear on what was happening here in this time and in this place. And in this way, if you were a disciple and you had a rabbi or a teacher as the apostles, Jesus was their rabbi and teacher. You would memorize his teaching. You would memorize it word for word what he taught you. Remember, this is an oral culture, but they would take Jesus's sayings and his sermons and his teachings and they would commit them to memory. And so when we hear the apostles teaching, it's just not some guys kind of going, hey, this is what I think about who Jesus is and what he did. They were literally saying back exactly what Jesus had told them. Now, we had also put into that that there's a supernatural part of that, that God protects And confirms through all of it. Jesus says to the apostles, I'm going to bring to remembrance everything that I've told you. I'm going to have you write this down. He has protected it. But we can trust the apostles teaching and what they were saying is what we hold in our hand in the New Testament. And so they devoted themselves to the word of God. What they had gotten directly from Jesus. And so they got together and they spent time and they listened If you want to get a good idea of what they were hearing right here in Acts chapter two, read the beginning of Acts chapter two, what Luke preached on last week. Peter stands up. This has been God's plan from the beginning that he would send his son Jesus to die for your sins, to do what you could never do for you, to take his sins on himself, to live this perfect life, to die an atoning death that you can be saved, profess and put your faith in Jesus and be baptized. That's what they were saying. They were hearing the gospel, the good news that we who were alienated by God from God because of our sin now can have be restored to that relationship we were created for by what Jesus has done. And so they were devoting themselves to the gospel, to the good news of who God is and what he's done as the apostles taught. And so it says they were getting together and they were digging into this and they were learning this together. They were applying the gospel to their lives. You see in verse uh, 46 that day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It kind of gives us the frequency of which this was happening. This was a daily thing. They were so excited about who God is and what he's done and the ways revealed himself and what they were hearing. They were getting together all the time to dig in and learn and see what this means. And so they were devoted to the apostles teaching. But then it says they were also devoted to the apostles teaching and to fellowship that they're spending time together. They're doing this daily. They were so excited that they were not just just hearing this once a week or or an hour together, but they were spending time together over and over digging into what God had revealed about who he is and what he'd done. Applying this together as they're spending time together. Then it says that they had uh, devoted to the teaching of the apostles fellowship to the breaking of bread. Later on, it'll talk about in verse 46 about breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. 
later on in Acts that will be fleshed out for us in the way Paul talks about it or, or the way Luke talks about Paul breaking a bread and going. And what it sounds like is happening later on in Acts is that they gather together and they have a meal and they enjoy fellowship and they spend time together and then they take the Lord's Supper as they're together. And I think we're safe to say that this is the Lord's Supper we're talking about because of the way it says it, the breaking of bread. It puts that definitive article on it that this is the thing they were doing. Now, it was often part of their meal as they gathered together and they're eating and then they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, which gets abused. And you see that addressed in Corinthians. You want to go read and get a fuller picture. But the image that we get is they're spending time together all the time, daily And they're sharing meals and they're reminding one another about what Christ has done. And they're holding to Jesus's teaching, which the apostles teaching is pointing us to what Jesus had taught them, which is do this in remembrance of me and continue to do this. Visibly take this uh, meal together that you touch and eat and drink that reminds you of what Jesus has done. And they are doing this daily. And then the last part, it says they're the breaking of bread and prayers. And they're devoted to prayer and all of this. And so you see this image of what they're doing. And it's pretty straightforward the way they're spending their time. Spend their time uh, looking at the word together, hearing from the apostles. They spend their time in fellowship, taking communion and praying. Sounds a little bit like what we do here when we gather together and we do this. But I'll be honest, the one thing that struck me when I read that, I went, yeah, that is what we do. We pray and we sing and we and we come together and we have fellowship and we take the Lord's Supper and we open God's word. But the thing that struck me when I read it is they do this every day. And they can't wait to get together to do this. And how often we set this aside as like an hour a week. Maybe I'll fit it into my schedule if it works for me this week to get there with other believers for an hour this week. Now, I, now I know a whole lot of you are getting together in a whole lot of other ways outside of this hour. And that's wonderful. And that's what we want to grow into as a church. But I was struck as I read this, the difference by the church today and what we see in Acts chapter two. We're kind of like, ah, I don't really have time for that. This was like the, the organizing principle of their life. They couldn't wait to get together. They couldn't wait to spend this time together. They couldn't wait to hear from the apostles. It says they were doing that every day, day by day. And then verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And you read that, this awe was coming upon every soul. Even think about the the, uh, order in which this happened. They're praying, they're hearing God's word, they're spending time together, they're taking communion, and this awe comes upon every soul. And then it says there's signs and wonders happening. I don't think that's a mistake, that order in which that happens. But then when we read that, we say many signs and wonders done by the apostles. And we go, what do we make of that? Or I do. I immediately think, well, what do we make of that? And sometimes we go, well, that was the apostles. The eyewitnesses, they have now died, so those things cease and miracles are not for today. Uh, I don't buy that, personally. Uh, We can talk about that later if you want to. I think God is still working. I think God does still intercede. I think he still does these things. Uh, But there's a couple things I want you to consider when we talk about that. 
Because what happens is when we begin to talk about miracles, I think it depends on how you frame those. If you see the natural order of being these things and it being unnatural or miraculous that God steps in, then you go, I don't know about that. But if you see it as God is setting all things right, he's restoring things to the way they were created to be. That his regenerating work is now coming in full through the Holy Spirit and what Jesus has done. The idea that he's doing those little things along the way. That he's giving us foretastes of the fullness that is to come when Jesus returns. It doesn't seem to be so odd. It's like, well, yeah, of course he's going to do that. It's what he does. And I think it depends on how you frame that and the way you look at it. But there's a couple things I want to say when we talk about this idea of miracles and miraculous things happening. I had a professor, and I say this often, that used to say we want to keep everything in the center of the biblical tension. And when we get to things like miraculous works and can God do this today and what does that look like? Oftentimes we get extremes. And I think the Bible clearly tells us a couple things that helps kind of keep us in the center of that biblical tension. And the first thing I would say is this, is that God is sovereign. God sometimes chooses to heal. He sometimes chooses to do miraculous things in our midst. And sometimes he doesn't. And he's sovereign over that. And sometimes what happens is people then put it and frame it like, well, if you just have enough faith, he'll do it. Suddenly God's not sovereign when we talk that way. I want you to think about that. And what we end up doing is if you had enough faith, then he would do this. And it puts this burden of guilt on you that you don't have enough faith. And it's no longer about who God is and the way he loves and his sovereign love. And he knows what's best. But it becomes all about you and your faith and how you hold on to it. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. And I don't think the Bible teaches that. Some God, sometimes God chooses to do it. And we glorify him and we give him the praise when he does. And sometimes he doesn't and we glorify him and we give him the praise because he knows best. But that doesn't mean he can't do it. The second thing I would say about that, too, is what you see all the way through Acts. What you see all the way through Jesus's ministry is he goes and he speaks and he heals people and he talks and he does all these things and he sets them right. It's always there to validate the message of glorifying Jesus. It's never about the person healing. This person's not healing anyway. It's God doing the healing, but it's not about the person speaking the words. It's always to magnify Jesus. I always almost chuckle when I think about it, when the, the paralytic is, is raised down in front of Jesus. You know the story. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. The guy's paralyzed. And he looks at him and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And? <laughs> and then he says, so that you know that I have the power to forgive your sins, get up and walk. The, the, the miraculous things are always there to magnify who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And you see that all the way through Acts. And so I think when we put those things around this, then suddenly we're more on a safer ground in the center of the biblical tension of the way God works in that. But I do believe he does that today. I do believe he can do that today. And so what we see here about what they were doing, what they were spending their time is pretty straightforward. And I want you to understand this. It's kind of the ordinary means 
word, prayer, fellowship. Those are the things that you see them doing. Taking communion. Those are the ordinary means in which God works. But the difference is they were just wholly devoted to these things. And as they begin to to see and seek him in this, then all these other things start to flow out of it. But I want you to notice that it's the ordinary means that God gives us that's the precursor to everything else that happens. And so today we want to make it about adding all these cool things and making a great experience and all this stuff. And I think the image that we get in Scripture is, no, God creates and recreates through his word. And you to be devoted to his word and to seeking him in prayer and fellowship and taking communion. And God works that way. But then what does he do when they do that? Verse 42, they're devoted to these things. Verse 43, there's awe upon every soul. But then look at what happens to them as they do this. Verse 44, and all who believe were together and had all things in common. I think the first thing you see is there's an incredible unity that comes upon the church. Just even the way that's written and the connotation of the way it's presented there. All who believed were together. They were together. And everything. And there's this unity that comes. And I want you to even think about Acts chapter 2 and everything we've looked up, looked at to this point. You had all these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A lot of them didn't speak the same languages. And the Holy Spirit comes and they hear the gospel in their language and they repent and they're baptized. And then all of a sudden they're unified together. All these different people. These different walks of life from all over. And suddenly they have this incredible unity. And I want you to think about how that happens. And I think that happens is because they're dedicated to the teaching of the apostles, which is the gospel. That we're all saved the same way. That we're all desperate sinners in need of God to do what we can never do. And Jesus has come and done it. That levels the field. There's no looking down on other people. All those things go away. Think about the fullness of everything they would have been teaching. All men are made in God's image. All men are separated from God because of their sin in the same way. Jesus comes to save some from every tribe, tongue and nation. And we're called to go to all of them. Can you imagine the good news that was to those people? The people that were normally left out, that were on the fringes, that were marginalized. And all of a sudden they go, no, no, the gospel is for you. And they all started to come together and they had all things in common. And the cross levels all of that. Socioeconomic differences, different nations, different callings, different backgrounds. When we really get the gospel, it levels all of us. Even if you grew up in the church and you thought you're a pretty good person that had it all together. And then God comes in, you go, man, I'm a helpless sinner desperately in need of Jesus. Or, or maybe you had a really checkered background and you've done all these things that you think you can never be forgiven for. And then all of a sudden you hear the good news of the gospel and you're forgiven. And it's the same way the guy who went to church his whole life is forgiven. And suddenly you have this unity in Jesus. And that's what happened. And they were together. There's this really, really awesome letter uh, from about 130 A.D. And it's it's a Roman guy writing to another Roman guy. And he's explaining how the gospel or or the Christianity has spread throughout the kingdom. 
So this is not in the Bible. This is an extra biblical. It's a letter that we've had. They date it around that time. And he says this as he writes to his friend. He says, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. He says it's strikingly, confessedly, their method of life is appealing. And here's why. They say everybody from every nation and every place is part of their own. They hold everything lightly. They're sojourners in this place. Citizens of heaven. And they welcome everyone. You know, he says in the letter, they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. You have any idea what that's talking about? You know, in Rome, if you had a child, an unwanted pregnancy that you didn't want, when they were an infant, you put them out on the road with the trash. And you let them die. And there's stories around this time that as the church grew, that the Christians went through the streets and picked up the babies and started to care for them. The church has always been pro-life. You didn't know that. All life is a gift from God. And they went through and they began to do that. And people saw and it was like, what is the deal with these people? They welcome everyone. They have a common table, but not a common bed in the Roman Empire. It was fine to share your bed with everybody. But you didn't invite people in from other socioeconomic classes into your house for a meal. So this guy goes, they do it the opposite. They're in committed monogamous relationships between one man and one woman for life, but they share their table with everybody. And you see this unity that grows in these people and this inclusiveness to all people and people are taking notice. But you see, not only this unity, look at verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Not only is there a unity, there's a radical generosity in the way that they live and the way that they operate together. I'm always kind of chuckle at commentaries when you get to this. People do lots of gymnastics to try to go, but this isn't for today. Yeah, but. Now, does it mean that if you become a Christian, you have to sell all your stuff and you can't have any possessions. No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that you just give everything away without any discernment? Just any time you see a need, you just give it away. Well, no, I don't think it means that either. But I would say to you, please don't just dismiss what it says here. Well, that's them trying to figure it out in the first century, but it's not really for us. Because I think if I, if I read the Gospels right and I see the things that Jesus says, I think they probably got this idea from Jesus. If anyone begs, you give to them. If you see a need, you meet it. Jesus is walking down the street. 
Matthew chapter 8, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. You know what he says? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? That's God in the flesh showing us exactly what it looks like to follow God in everything perfectly. And so oftentimes we let our culture and where we are kind of gloss over things like that. Uh, I don't know about that. I was struck by thinking about just that idea of meeting needs and giving up, giving radically, becoming radically generous, denying ourselves to the needs of other, helping one another. One, it's hard. It's hard because we're selfish. I think it's hard because we're rich. And you may sit here and go, well, hey, you speak for yourself. I'm not rich. But what I mean by that is you live in America in 2017. You are rich. Beyond anything you can imagine. Worldwide speaking, we're the richest nation on the face of the earth and we have it easier and better than anybody else has ever had in the history of the world. And I'll tell you, when we read that, that's very hard for us to say because we are so rich. And I think of Jesus coming face to face with the rich young ruler and the guy saying, hey, I've kept everything. I've done all of it. And he says, great. You know that passage? You know what he says? You know what Mark tells us? It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and your treasure will be in heaven. You come and follow me. Jesus loving him goes, quit loving your stuff and love people, which is exactly what happened here. That's what it's telling us. They had this unity that they were so together in all things that they're so committed to the gospel and what it means for all of us and loving one another. The idea that it's all my stuff and it's all for me was blown apart and they become radically generous to one another. Oh, you have a need. Well, we can help with that. Let's do that together. And so you see not only a unity, but you see a radical generosity. But then look at what else happens there. Which is, this is the exact opposite of everything our culture would tell us happens. They sell all their stuff. They meet needs. They have everything together. They're working together in this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They give up their stuff. They don't care so much about this is mine and I got all my stuff. And they start to care and meet needs and love other people. And then it says they walked around with glad and generous hearts, praising God all the time. Maybe stuff doesn't bring us happiness. Maybe our joy and our security are not found in a bank account, but in glorifying God in all things. And that's what they were doing. And that's what was happening and you see them going out with glad and generous hearts. And I want you to think about how these things come forth in that. Being devoted to the apostles teaching, being devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread and praying and seeking God and everything. You know, what begins to happen when you do that. Lives of praise that see God in everything. 
You sell all your stuff, you help other people, then suddenly you have a meal in front of you. Thank you, God, for this meal today. As we fellowship together and we devote ourselves to God's word, our heart gets convicted of our sinfulness and our selfishness. And then there are other people there walking alongside of you to go, yes, but God's forgiven you and you're a new creation in Jesus. And you go, thank you, God. And it begins to get into everything. And so when it says praising God, it wasn't just that they were going to the temple and corporately praising God, although they were doing that. They were praising God in everything, in their meals, in the way they spent time together, in the way they served each other. They were seeing God in everything to the point that their hearts are overflowing with glad and generous hearts, praising God everywhere they went. It's a pretty incredible picture. And so you see what they're devoted to. You see what begins to happen to them. But then what effect does it have on the people around them? They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What was the effect that it had on those around? The effect that it had is the church exploded from 120 to 3,000 to 10,000. And it went out and out and more and more. And people were overwhelmed by what they were seeing. To the point, 100 years later, you got guys writing letters about like, this is why everybody likes it. They love people. They care for one another. It's almost like When Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by the way you love each other. It's like they did it. And it says they found favor with all people. And so I want you to think about what that looks like. Devoted to the gospel, meeting needs, spending time together, being transformed, encouraging one another. Meeting together daily. You ever met anyone that's just really joyous all the time? You just want to be around them. People that are constantly thankful. And you see this image of the church operating this way. I was so struck. So two weeks ago, I started reading for this, knowing that Luke would preach next week. I wasn't going to be here. And I read an article. It's from the McCrindle Research Institute in Australia. And they said the things that are most attractive to people today to draw them to spirituality and religion. Not even talking about Christianity in particular, but just in general. They said the most off-putting things were debating and apologetics, which I thought was kind of funny because that's usually where we go. Well, I'll just debate you on it. But what it said is the most attractive things were seeing people who live out a genuine faith. And then the second thing is those whose lives had been changed by the faith faith that they profess. Sounds like Acts 2. That they were seeing these people who were proclaiming the gospel and it was actually affecting their lives and changing the way they operated. 
and the way they loved one another and the way they welcome people in. We're all saved the same way. It's all Christ. It's all what he's done. And then their lives show that. And this amazing thing happens. People go, yeah, I want to hear that. That looks pretty great. Now, that doesn't mean today we do all this exactly like this and everyone will just come flocking. It'll be wonderful. But my question is, as I think about this, is do we look like this today? Or does the church look a little bit like the world with a little Jesus sprinkled on top? And what would happen if we lived like this? I think we'd have lives of generous hearts overflowing with thankfulness and praising God in all things. Doesn't mean everything would go away. Doesn't mean all the struggles and issues and problems that are in the world, they would still be there. But when we focus on God at the center of all of this, it transforms us. And so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I read this this week about them being devoted to these things daily and thought, is that what my life looks like? Probably not. I mean, I read my Bible every day and I pray every day and I talk to people about God every day. But I don't know that it looks like this. But I really would like it to. I'd really like to see people in Dawsonville, Georgia, go, what is wrong with those people? They are so thankful and they are so joyous. And they're so overwhelmed by God's grace and what he's done. I think I kind of want to talk to him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I wish I had the perfect program of how that would work and go, here's how you do it. What I know is that we gather together every week and we hear from God's word and we take communion and we pray. And then we meet together in smaller groups throughout the week at different times and we share meals together. And we share with one another and we look for opportunities to serve. So if you don't know where to start, I'd ask you just to step into one of those groups to do that. And maybe start to pray together. What does it look like, God, for this to be like the early church? But we are, after all, we call it Acts 29 church. And we say that there's only 28 chapters. I always have to say this. We are the 29th chapter. We're living it. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have it look that way? Wouldn't it be wonderful to just live with a glad and generous heart and everything? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that the things that they were devoting themselves to that were radically changing their lives and their community and spreading the church throughout the face of of this planet are the same things that we profess today. That it's all you. And it's by your spirit working, illuminating our hearts and minds, pointing us to Jesus and what he's done. And we ask that you would help us to put you in your proper place in our lives. That you truly would be the center of all that we do. That you would give us glad and generous hearts that see you 
and the truth of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do, what you're going to bring to fruition as you return, that we would see that so clearly that it would be the thing that unites us. It would be the thing that draws us together. It would be the thing that makes us want to get up each day and proclaim your goodness and live lives of praise in all things. We thank you that you are still working, that you are not done with us. We thank you that we are saved by what Jesus has done for us and not our performance. But we do ask that you would change us, that you would continue to bring us from one degree of glory to another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.